Good morning, Bethel Church. That was pretty good. Let's try one more time. Good morning, Bethel Church. Excellent. We are really, really glad you're here. And I like to know that you're engaged because we're going to be very engaged this morning. We are tremendously glad you're here, not because we like to do church together, though that is a reason, but because Family Month is really special at Bethel. It's an annual event that we have, and it is always designed to target really important things. And we've done that a variety of different ways over the years. This year is no exception to that, though we will be doing it a little bit differently. You got a very unique perspective on some things from Pastor Mark this past week. Uh, next week, you're going to hear some things on uh, gender from Pastor Steve. But today, as the pastor of counseling, I thought to myself, self, we should probably do something counseling-oriented. So this morning is going to be very uh, preemptive care. If you're thinking this morning, I've got a healthy marriage, I want to assure you this is still for you. As Pastor Andrew said, if you're 16 this morning and you're thinking, ah, I'm kind of dating, maybe kind of not, this is still for you. If you're 12, this is still for you. If you're thinking this morning, I am not sure that there is anything in the world that will save what is happening between me and this other person, I assure you, this is for you. Because God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there is always, always, always hope. So what I want to do this morning is give you a lot of hope. I want to give you a number of very practical things. You see, here at Bethel Church, if you're new here, you would not know that typically what we do is we go exegetically through the Bible. We go verse by verse or major verse uh, series of ideas through the book of Romans currently. But for this message today, we're going to be tremendously practical. So practical that I'm going to actually ask you to do something. For those of you that have bulletins, let me see them for a second. If you've got them, let me see them. I want you to take notes. If you've got a pen, I want you to take notes. Furthermore, and this is the dangerous part, if you don't have a pen, I would like you to get out your smartphone. But I do not, under any circumstances, want you checking Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, any other form of social media, your email. But I do want you to open up notes and jot some things down because after we go through God's Word today, I'm going to give you a very practical system of things. Because I want every single person here to be able to leave today knowing I can do this. It honors the Lord and my relationships, not just my marriage, but any relationship that I have will be better as a result. Because I have found that there are four things and always four things that touch every single relationship. So much so that I start every single counseling session that I have that touches relationships with these four things, whether it's pre-marriage counseling, just general marriage counseling. I did a, work, uh, a marriage retreat back in February, started with these four things. Broken marriages, you name it. If it touches a relationship that you have, I always start with these same four things. Well, what are those four things? They are these. Assumptions, presumptions, expectations, and values. And it is a breakdown somewhere between these four things that result in the bigger areas of breakdown that are often associated with hurting relationships, failing marriages, and broken families. Always finding their origin in these four things. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to unpack each one of them. And then we're going to go and put them into a very practical system that you can literally get into your car today and use with a great level of immediacy. So let's dive into the concepts themselves. The first one is this. Assumptions. What is an assumption? An assumption is a thought or idea that is hoped for or accepted as factual, but you don't have any proof for it. So basically what an assumption is, is it's a thought or idea based on nothing. 
They're your subjective musings, your subjective thoughts for reasons that only you have. They're things that you simply accept to be true because you want them to be true. There's no proof of rightness, there's no proof of wrongness, this is just what you think, therefore this is the way that it is going to be. Now here's the thing, putting even the word assumption on the screen, some of you are probably thinking about the word assume right now. This is church, we don't use that phrase. But you get my point, even culturally, we know that there is inherent danger to the idea of assumptions. The Bible does not leave us alone as we think about this. Let me give us a couple of passages of Scripture to think through. First is Proverbs 18.2. It says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Later in that same chapter, it says in verse 13, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In Proverbs 24, 3 through 7, it says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool, and the gate he does not open his mouth. Now, that's a pretty dense passage of Scripture. So what what specifically does it mean? It means this. It would be by foolishness that a house would be destroyed, by a lack of understanding that one would not be able to establish themselves, that without knowledge rooms remain empty, and that in willful ignorance we have no might. That sounds an awful lot like someone who assumes. You lose things. Because you're operating from the standpoint of you being the final arbiter of every decision that you make. And assumptions, if you've not gathered it to this point, I'll share with you, are very, very dangerous. Because it makes you and only you the final authority on everything. Which is why the Bible punches this a little bit. It calls it, again, folly and shame. What is folly? Folly is an act of utter foolishness done by someone lacking sense. That's unpleasant. What about shame? Bible scholar David White says, shame is what happens when we begin to identify directly with our sin and view it as who we are rather than something we do. That should punch a little bit for us. Those of you that have ever been in any kind of therapy or dealt with shame in your life, you may know that there are entire therapeutic models dedicated to addressing the subject of shame. So for the Bible to call making assumptions filled with folly and shameful, we should sit up and pay attention to that. That should give us pause and notice. But we could spend the next 40 minutes just on this subject, and there are three others that I want to touch before we get into practical application. So let's, let's keep going. What's the second thing that affects every relationship? Presumptions. Presumptions are a little bit different. They are thoughts or ideas that are accepted as factual, with some proof, meaning there is some reason that you think the way you do about a given matter. You have some experiential, some observational, some realistic reason, something you saw, something you experienced led you to think, this is the way of things. This is the reason that I think it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but at least you have a reason. 
let's, get, let's take a harmless example because it's good that we have something to kind of root this in. Maybe you grew up in a family where you had dinner together all the time. And let's, let's just say dinner was at 5.30, right? So throughout your life, you have the expectation. You're home from school, your school books are closed, you're done with soccer practice, whatever. Everybody is home, dad's home from work, and at 5.30, that's when you sat down for dinner. You grew up in the environment, that was the base of information that you had. 5.30, everybody was home for dinner. And then you get married, right? And at about 5.29, you're starting to think, I'm hungry. At about 5.35, you're like, where's the food? There are reasons that we have that we think certain things. And unfortunately, those reasons, again, another, whether good or bad, they color our perception. They inform why we think a certain way about a thing. And the Bible is filled with presumptions as well. And I just want to give you one because I think it's an important one and it's one that we could very easily misunderstand. It's from the book of Esther. Esther is a, it's a very dense book filled with all kinds of information. And I just want to give you one example from Esther chapter 4. But before I do that, let me give you a flyover view so you know exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. In your Bible, you'll actually find the book of Esther in the front third. So if you go to Psalms and you like flip back a few pages, you're there, you hit it. But chronologically, you would actually find Esther near the end of the Old Testament. Those of you that are familiar with biblical history, you know that at the end of Malachi, there's 400 years of silence, and then you have the book of Matthew. Esther takes place about 450 or 500 years before the birth of Jesus, so just before that 400 years of silence. So it's very much near the end of the Old Testament, and it's during the reign of the Persian Empire, so before the Romans take over. And what's happening here is Esther, who was a Jew, she's the queen of all of Persia. Fascinating story. Esther became the queen a very specific way. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. Well, what's happening here in this portion of Esther, in Esther chapter 4, is Esther's going around being the queen and things are going well. But there's another guy named Haman who rises up in the courts of the king of Persia. His name is, again, Haman. And Haman, he gets offended by Mordecai. Mordecai happens to be the guy that raised Esther. And as a result of Haman getting offended, Mordecai's, or Haman's thought is, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to exterminate Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, all the Jews. I will not be offended in this way when I'm an official in the king's court. So Haman manipulates the king into being okay with this, and in fact, they go on to celebrate it. Well, obviously, Mordecai, he becomes, you know, not thrilled with this, and he tears his clothes, he, put dust on it, he puts dust on his head, and he goes about mourning. Obviously, Esther's servants hear of this, and she sends some servants to Mordecai. Mordecai explains the situation to her and says, you need to go to your husband. You need to appeal on our behalf. Tell him, we cannot do this. Esther, this would even result in your death. So we pick up the story then in Esther chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Listen to Esther's response. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes inside the king's inner courts without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that you may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now we could read this and presume that Esther is afraid. And that would be a reasonable presumption, would it not? 
But in fact, it's even a little bit deeper than that. You see, Esther is not the first queen of Persia. She's the second. And she knows what happened to the previous queen. In Esther chapter 1, we find Queen Vashti had been issued a, uh, queen Vashti had been issued a command by the king. And she uh, did not do it. She did not follow through on it. And as a result, she was stripped of her queenship, which is how Esther became the queen. So she knew, not only had she not been summoned for 30 days, she also knew that the previous queen, who had kind of stepped out of the king's design, did not end well for her. She, I think we could agree, she had a factual reason to think the way that she did. She had a number of pieces of information that led her to that conclusion. Now, we could, we could get stuck here too and talk about presumptions and how it is we work our way through presumptions. But what we learn is this, presumptions give us the means for communication. And that's what happened here. Esther and Mordecai, they had communication and they devised a plan. Presumptions should always lead us to better communication, but we'll come back to that. What's the third thing that we need to understand before we can actually transition into application? Expectations. Expectations are a very specific thing. They're this. Belief that something could or should occur based on presumptions or assumptions. It's a really fancy way of saying, this is how it should be. Anybody in the room have expectations? This is how it should be. This is how I grew up. This is how I experienced things. This is how it should be. The Bible is filled with expectations. Consider Psalm 13, 1 through 4. David here is writing when his son has conspired against him. Oh Lord, how long shall you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's saying, Lord, this is not how it should be. Help me understand. Help me understand what's actually happening here. How about Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4? Here, Habakkuk is witnessing the persecution of Israel, and he doesn't understand what's happening. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at wrong? That sounds an awful, an awful lot like expectations of what God should be doing. Based on previous experience, certainly so. How about Job? You see, Job's friends, they get a bad rap, but truthfully, they went to Job and they shared their experience with God. They shared their knowledge of God. They said, Job, typically, when people are doing the right thing, God honors them. God doesn't allow all of this. And you've got all of this happening, so clearly you must be being disciplined by God. Repent. It was consistent with their experience of God. How about Jesus? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a field on the Sabbath day and they're picking heads of grain and they're eating these heads of grain. And the Pharisees, you see, this is before, this is before the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees got very charged. And the Pharisees go to Jesus knowing he's a pious man and they say, you guys can't be doing this. Don't you know it's the Sabbath day? You can't do any work on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus does, instead of outright rebuke them, is he corrects their misunderstanding. He corrects their expectations. You see, each and every single one of these were very well-founded. In Psalm 13, David was grappling with his son, trying to kill him and take his kingship. Habakkuk was witnessing persecution of Israel that God had promised to protect them from and didn't understand what was happening. 
Job's friends lacked information. The the Pharisees were certainly self-serving, but they did know the law. They knew this is how it should be. And this is often what happens in our relationships as well. We have expectations. They are well-founded. We expect that if one thing was one way one time, it should probably be that way all the time. We expect, for example, if you're married, we expect that if we went out on a bunch of dates and had a, you know, a really good time before we got married, we'd still be going out on dates after we got married. We expect that if I'm going to make this much money, I'm always going to make this much money, if not maybe a little bit more money. We expect that if my spouse lavished me with love and care and affection before we got married, that they will always lavish me with that same, if not more, love and care and respect after we get married. Let's let's push the envelope a little bit here. We expect that if we did those sexual things before we got married, they would stay the same after we got married, if not get better. We expect that when we ask or tell our children to turn off the light, load the dishwasher, do their chores, not hit their sibling, that they will simply load the dishwasher, do their chores, turn out the light, and not hit their sibling. It is not rocket science. Just meet my expectations. This is how it should be. See, this affects every area of our life, and we don't always realize it. Things subtly subtly weave their way into our thinking, and we form these things, and we impose them onto other people all the time, thinking, this is how it should be. Nod with me if you understand what I'm talking about here. This is important, because it's not just overt, it's subvert too. It's happening inside of us all the time. And what we're seeing here from Scripture is if our expectations are coming from a place of ignorance, misunderstanding, pride, or assumptions, then our expectations are certain to be unmet, if not broken. If your expectations are a result of your assumptions or your presumptions, the only baseline is still you, which says something very specific about how we gain our expectations and how we maintain them. And this is what I want to turn our attention to and focus on the rest of the time we are together. We need to focus on our values. Values are tremendously, tremendously important because your values, my values, they touch and affect every single area, every single decision that we make every day, all the time, without exception. It is my values that are going to dictate, for example, am I going to rationalize and justify seven miles an hour over the speed limit? because I know I can do it. It's my values that dictate, am I going to yell at my boyfriend or girlfriend? Am I going to yell at my spouse? Am I going to yell at my children to get them to do what I want? It's my values that dictate, am I going to cheat on my taxes? Maybe save some money? It's my values that dictate, it's your values that dictate, are you going to treat someone who is treating you non-respectfully? Are you going to treat them with love? It's our values that dictate, am I going to rationalize and justify watching pornography? And that is not exclusively a male problem anymore. Our values touch everything. What are these mythic values? Values are these, core beliefs to oneself. 
a personal set of standards, principles, or codes that one judges as important to their life, to have a high regard for, to have a high conviction of. These are tremendously important things. Two examples from Scripture that we'll go through very quickly. First is in Genesis 29. In Genesis 29, we encounter Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? Jacob here has gone to live with his uncle Laban, and when he gets there, he's working for him, and he wants to marry one of Laban's daughters, Rachel. And what happens is they enter into an agreement. Jacob will work for Laban for seven years, and then he will get to marry Rachel. So he does. He works for seven years, but Laban does not honor his end of the deal. And as a result, he gives his other daughter, Leah, to Jacob, who he marries, but he doesn't know that that's who he's married until it's too late. Jacob is none too pleased with this. How many of you ever married the person you didn't think you were going to marry? Don't answer that. <laughs> it's a trap. Star Wars reference. But what Jacob does here is he works another seven years and he marries Rachel. And all along the way, he honors the commitment that he made. He didn't have to do that. And those of you that are familiar with Jacob's life history, he was not always a man who lived by his values. But at this point in time, we engaged him at it when he was. He honored all 14 years, even though he had been wronged. What's a negative example of not living by your values? In Acts 5, we engage with Ananias and Sapphira. You may be familiar with this story. It's in the very early days of the church. And the church is growing. People are being added to it all the time. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this piece of land because they want to give to the church. It's a good thing to do. But what they did was they kept some of the money back. That's not an inherently wrong thing. Many, if not all of us, probably have a paycheck of some kind coming in. You probably, on only rare occasion, give the whole thing. Right? And what they did, though, is they presented themselves as if they were. And they were disciplined as a result. They wanted the esteem and prestige of being a big giver, but in fact, they were not. It was all about self-service. Their values were certainly evidenced. And there are countless places that we can go to talk about values and how to and how not to live by them. But I want to make sure that we get to the practical standard of things. But we need, we need to understand something, something very, very specific, and it is this. Any standard any core belief system that is in conflict with a God-centered hermeneutic and honestly results in any form of sinfulness at all is destined to let you down, if not fail, entirely. Any decision that you make that is outside of what God says is correct is destined to fail. It is destined to let you down even if there is a temporary benefit that you get from it in the time. You see, this is what happens in so many relationships. This is why they get into trouble. Their values are wrong, or their values are compromised. Broken values then lead to unmet expectations. Unmet expectations lead people to form wrong presumptions or assumptions about a given matter, whatever that is. Or worse yet, you have values, but you don't care. Maybe you know someone who says, I'm a Christian. But there's no evidence, no fruit in their life at all that looks like they are a follower of Christ. It's in word, but not in deed. They still willfully or intentionally or consistently choose sin even when they know it's wrong. And what happens then is these four things, they work against you. 
Assumptions, presumptions, expectations, and values, they fight against you all the time because they put you back in the position of being the ultimate authority of your own life. And because you are the standard then for your assumptions or presumptions, you form expectations around those things. And because again, you are the standard for your expectations, which are based on your assumptions and presumptions, your expectations are destined, destined to let you down because they do not have the right foundation. And when you operate from the standpoint of consistently having the wrong foundation, everything falls apart. Your relationships deteriorate. Your communication is non-existent or broken at best. When our assumptions make our world unpleasant, when our presumptions turn out to be wrong, when our expectations continuously are let down, What happens after all of those things? What happens? Typically, for the Christian, for us, what happens after we have failed ourselves, finally, we remember that thought, maybe I should pray. Finally, we think, maybe we should go and talk to someone. Maybe we need to see a pastor. Maybe we should go to a marriage retreat. Maybe we should do something. But it is only Maybe after everything else you tried first fails. And my friends, that is not the way that it should be. It doesn't ever start out like this though, does it? Typically it starts out small. Let's use marriage as an example because I think it's a good one. Maybe when you were dating, things were going really well. You dated a lot, you hung out with people, things were going well. But maybe in the background, when no one else was around, there was just a little bit of sexual compromise. But how often is just a little bit enough? Or maybe you spent a little bit too much money. How often does a little bit turn into a lot? I was raised with the phrase, what you win them with, you keep them with. So when you do a little bit and the little bit becomes the expectation, no one's going to be satisfied with a little bit forever, right? So then it gets bigger and bigger. And compromise begets compromise begets compromise. Maybe when you compromised on the little sexual thing, it turned into a bigger sexual thing. Maybe when you compromised with a little bit of money, it turned into a lot of money. But what is happening the whole of that time is something very specific. Especially, especially if you both are or were Christians and had some sort of maybe unspoken value system. You intentionally reflected to each other a compromised value system all the time. You showed one another, we show one another when we sin that we really can't be trusted. Does that make sense? Because when you are willing to compromise on the little things, it breeds that subtle sense of maybe they'll compromise on the big things too. If I couldn't trust them then, how do I know I can trust them in the future? Does that make sense? Too often, little compromises have overwhelming, massive ramifications. Let me press on this just a little bit further. We have certain times throughout the year that involve what I'll call holiday caricatures. And what I want to encourage you to do is think about with those things how much acceptable deceit you allow in your home. How much acceptable deceit has become acceptable. 
And in God's economy, is there ever a time for acceptable deceit? Let's make it marriage-related. Guys, her haircut is that bad. Yeah. You got to find an honest way to say it, though. <laughs> that preaches, doesn't it? My point is this. The moment acceptable deceit has entered your relationship, the moment it becomes okay for whatever reason to lie, you have compromised your value system. The moment you have said, it is okay for me to lie because the ends justify the means, because the investment overwhelms the cost of that I might pay, like, ugh, you have created overwhelming problems for yourself. So what do we do? How do we, how do we fix this? How do we ensure that we have a God-centered relationship? How do we restore marriages? How do we fix broken communication? If you're dating right now and thinking, we have begun to compromise. If you're in a broken marriage situation right now and you're thinking, we have begun to compromise, this is the part of things that I want to encourage you to pay the closest attention to. How do we start the process of change? How do we enhance what is broken? It starts with this. Determine your values. Determine your value system. For the Christian, we find that in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. It says this, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Folks, this is of highest, highest, highest significance. If our relationships and marriages and parenting and boyfriend, girlfriend and engaged relationships are to reflect our core values, it has to start with the single greatest set of instructions that God gave us, always. Our primary value must be to love God first. Our primary value, the very first tenet of every relationship must be, I love, serve, and honor God first. Because that changes everything. To love God with everything, all the time, every moment, every day, without exception. Because it is when we make exceptions that we start to operate in the realm of assumption. So I want to press this just a little bit further. I want to ask you, how often do you make exceptions? How often is just a little bit okay? How often do you say just this one time? How often do you say I'm late? How often does a little compromise work its way in? And for what reason do you find yourself struggling with that? I think what this comes down to for many people, because I, I do a lot of marriage counseling, the vast majority of what I end up doing for our church is marriage counseling. And more and more what I am seeing is that there are individuals who have awareness of God, but not a heart-level transformation of their soul by the gospel. Amen. James 2.19, it kind of punches this a little bit, and it's kind of uncomfortable. It says, even the demons believe. Awareness that Jesus died for your sins is a very good thing because it's true. But if you do not live like Jesus died for your sins, awareness of God is not the same as heart change. Amen. And awareness of God isn't going to get you into heaven. And awareness of God is not going to fix your broken relationship. But a changed heart that reflects and changed behavior does. A heart that is compelled to love, serve, and honor God first, you act differently because you, you want to. 
Does that make sense? If you are struggling this morning, if you are struggling this morning, if you are listening to this and you are struggling, I want to challenge you right now to ask yourself the question, do I know Jesus as my Savior? Or am I just aware that he's real? Find a pastor afterwards if that's you. Stop right now if that's you. Don't stay at awareness. Surrender your life to Christ. Make him the Lord of your life so that you can experience change from the inside out. So that your values don't start with you. But we appeal then to a higher authority than us. Because it is correct, healthy, godly values with a loving Lord that changes everything. It starts with an attitude of I love, serve, and honor God first. And what happens then is we put everything in the right order. Your values don't originate with you. Your values are not about your spouse. They're not about the relationship that you're in. They're not about your kids. Your values are about God. If your core values start with biblical realities, everything else falls in line after that. Too often we think with our presumptions. Too often our presumptions led to expectations. And that's okay because we saw something that was a certain way, but that doesn't mean it's right. Over time, when we start to fill in the blanks, that's when we run into problems. And then what happens, because we do have values, is we live an awful lot. Like the gospel is like the wind behind our back. Have you ever been pushed by the wind? You've been pushed by the wind? It's hard to stay up, and it's pushing you, and it's pushing you, and it's pushing you. That is not how the Bible describes the gospel. Let me appeal to the old hymn. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. He's not the wind pushing you. He is the ground beneath your feet. That is the difference between awareness and heart change. You need to stand on the solid rock of Christ. We need to stand on the solid value-based foundation of Christ. And what happens then is everything goes into the right order. We start with our values. Our values then, they create our expectations. Does that make sense? We start with the right thing. If your core value is loving God first, your expectations and your relationships will all fall into a God-centered thought process as a result. And you and your spouse, you and your friends, you and your children, you and your boyfriend or girlfriend can put everything in the right order. Your values create your expectations. If your values are your core beliefs about life and your expectations are this is how it should be, God gives you that. God hands it to you. God says, Christian, here, this is how it should be. God says, non-believer, here, this is how it should be. Come to me. Here, this is how it should be. And what correct expectations do is they give you correct presumptions. If, if God tells you this is how it should be, then you have thoughts or ideas that are based on something. And what happens as a result is you eliminate the need for assumptions altogether. They're not necessary. Friends, you do not have to be the final arbiter of authority in your life anymore. You are free. Amen. Too often we live in bondage to ourselves. You don't have to be in bondage to yourself anymore. You don't have to con conjure up all the answers. God gives them to you. So how do we take this and do something with it? How do we practically do something with everything that we've talked about this morning. I want to give you a system. I want to give you a system of things that you can then do in your life so that you are never left alone.
And this system is functional for every relationship that you're in. You do not have to be married to do this. If you've got broken friendships in your life, this is helpful for you. If your marriage is on the rocks, this is going to be helpful for you. If you've got the best marriage you've ever had, good, this is helpful for you. The important thing is when tumultuous water is in front of us, you have a thing you can go back to. My encouragement to you is this, follow the steps in the order that I give them. Because if you're jumping around, you're going to find that they work against you because you're not following it the way that the Lord designed it to be. So what are these things? The very first thing, step number one, if you have engaged in compromise, if your marriage is struggling, if your relationship with your kids is struggling, if you've engaged in compromise with your fiancé or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you need to repent. You need to go to them and say, I'm sorry for compromising, number one. I was wrong for compromising, number two. Will you please forgive me for compromising? Acknowledgement, ownership, repentance. I'm sorry for, I was wrong for, please forgive me for. That is the biblical apology method. And I don't have time to take you through the scripture to show this to you, but my point is this. If there is brokenness or compromise in your relationship, that is where you start. Because if you're not going to recognize what's behind you, it's still just going to keep pushing you. Make sense? If there's compromise in your life, get it right. Step two, determine your values. How do you do that? How do you functionally create a value system? Remember first that they are your core beliefs about life. So your very first value is this, I love, serve, and honor God first. You need to separate from your spouse, separate from your boyfriend or girlfriend, separate from your kids, and you both need to go and write down your core values. Write them down. Make a list, starting with a God-centered relationship first. Write them all down. Take some time. Think about them. Pray about them. And then come back together with the person that you need to reconcile the relationship with and go through your values together. What you need to do then is rank them in order of importance and tackle one at a time. One at a time, not five at a time, one at a time, because we are presumptuous people at times. We think, I can do more than one. Don't do more than one. And I'll talk more about why here in just a minute. Step three, ask good questions. Remember, your presumptions, they're not facts. Neither are your expectations. They are not facts. Presumptions are thoughts or ideas that are based on some form of data. So in order to validate information, you ask questions. In order to determine what is the basis for that presumption, ask questions. In order to determine where did that expectation come from, ask questions. If someone is saying, this is a biblical value, where did you find it? Talk through that. You see, presumptions are an opportunity for increased communication. Ask questions. Talk, 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 talk. A related principle is put five pounds in a five-pound bag. What does that mean? How many of you occasionally go to the grocery store and think you can overfill that bag? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you. I've seen you. And you're trying to, like, carry it, and you're like, if I just, if I, like, hold the handles right here, the stuff on the top, it won't fall. But when you put it in the truck, what's going to happen? It's, gonna, it's all going to fall, right? Put five pounds in a five-pound bag. Only tackle what you can and celebrate the victory. Don't overfill the bag thinking, okay, we got this in here. We can jam another thing in there too. Celebrate the little victories. Put your values in order. 
Start knocking them out one at a time, celebrate the victory, then move on to the next one. Step four. Step four, test drive your values. Don't just take three days, take a month. Take four weeks. Four weeks, you need a month to actually test drive your values because here's the thing, to get to the point that we've all been at at one point or another, you formed bad habits. Habits take time to break. They take investment, they take initiative, they take thought, they take meditation on scripture, they take applying gospel truth to your life. You need to take the time because typically by about day three or four, you're gonna slip up a little bit or your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your child are gonna slip up a little bit. But because you've planned a month, that is not a reason to throw the whole process out the window as we typically do when we try and form new habits. Test drive them for a month, take an appropriate amount of time. And the fifth then is this, revisit and refine as necessary. Revisit and refine as necessary. Because some of you have been married for like more than two years. Are your values today the same as they were when you got married? I bet you if I asked Tyler to come back up here, and I'm not, don't worry. But if I asked him to come back up here and ask him today, are your values today the same as they were 16 years ago? Maybe some of them. But those of you who have had children, you know your values change after you have children, right? Those of you that are engaged or dating someone, <laughs> your values change after you get married. You know what I'm talking about. The point is your values change and you need to revisit them and refine them often. You can't just think things will always be the way that they are. Communicate, communicate, communicate. This is a very biblical system. It starts with the gospel as the foundation between your feet. It starts with you as an individual, loving, serving, and honoring God first as a result. And it starts with you then, after those things, loving your neighbor, in the case of marriage, your spouse, as you love yourself. You're putting things in the right order, and when we put things in the right order, when we put things in the right order, God honors our biblical decision-making. And we put ourselves in a much better position to have the types of God-centered and God-honoring relationships that we desire. So I hope this was encouraging to you. I hope that you leave today with a series of very practical tools that you can get in your car and start. I hope that some of you think today that may have thought earlier, maybe we need to see someone. I encourage you to try this first. Try this first.